Good morning. We'll continue with the adventure that we started last week, looking and walking through the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to John chapter 1. I feel like I'm going to be saying that for several weeks. Open your Bibles to John chapter 1. We're going to take a look at verses 6 through 13 this morning. And I'll read them. And then we'll ask the Lord to give us His mercy and His wisdom and for the Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds as well as our hearts. Verse 6 of the first chapter. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. O Lord, we come and we ask you to open up our minds. Father, we need to understand what this means. There is something cosmic. There is something heavenly, there is something very real here in these words that John have written, and we need to know what those mean, what it is you're trying to tell us. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would just just wash over us in this hour and just fill us with wisdom and understanding and insights so that our minds comprehend these words and we see what it is you want us to understand about you and your work of salvation. But we also want to know it. We just don't want to know it in our minds. We want to know it in our hearts and our souls and our whole bodies. We want our our whole personhood to be engaged with what you're telling us and what our response to it is to be. Oh Lord, do this thing that is beyond human ability. Do this thing that is beyond human understanding to understand and comprehend the voice of God. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have to sort of do a little cleanup here from last week. I was talking about Athanasius and the Council of Nicaea and and the struggle and the fight for the deity of Jesus that occurred there in the Council of Nicaea. And, and, and I kept saying it was in 319. Well, that's not true. That was a different thing occurred that day in 319. It was 325 AD was when the Council of Nicaea occurred and, and that hugely significant moment in church history when when the balance of gospel truth was hanging in the balance. And 
we don't really grasp and understand sometimes how from a human perspective, how do I say this? The fragility of biblical truth. And how there are certain moments in history, in church history specifically, when it's just literally hanging in the balance and but for the divine working of God to preserve his word and the truth of the gospel, it would recede into history and exist no more as the real gospel of Jesus Christ. And that was one of those moments. And again, and as we stand here on this third Sunday of October, just a few short weeks away from the 31st. Everybody thinks about it as Halloween, but I never think about Halloween anymore. I just think about Reformation Day, that day when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the front door of the church at Wittenberg and the restoration and recovery of the true gospel of Jesus Christ took place and erupted in that small German town and just exploded across all of Europe, transforming not just the church, but even human history through the Reformation that occurred that day. And how the, in a sense, the gospel, the true gospel of Jesus had already been lost before Martin wrote those 95 questions and hung them on the door. And oh, just by coincidence, the first printing press had shown up in that town and the guys who owned it were looking for something to print that would catch people's attention. Basically, like newspapers today, they wanted something sensational to get people to buy their paper. Just, oh, by chance, the press was there waiting and they were looking for something to print. And they printed his 95 theses. And what would normally take months to replicate and spread across just Germany alone seemed like in days had reached all the way to the palace of the German king. Just a coincidence that his 95 theses came out at that moment and that all of Europe erupted with this stirring of the world that Luther and then Calvin and then Zwingli. And then that led to the whole craziness of of actually writing the Bible in the native tongue of the people that are trying to read it. Taking, how dare you take the interpretation and understanding of the written word of God and put it into a common vulgar language for people to understand. How dare you take the interpretation of that out of the hands of the priest and the learned and entrust it to uneducated commoners to understand. And Tyndall, with his translations in English that later followed, just setting a, the whole world was set on fire that day and no one realized that a match had even been struck. And so here we are today and in some ways it feels so much like 
Europe in the early 1500s and Eastern Roman Empire in 325 AD where where the gospel just it seems to be lost at times it it certainly feels lost among our culture and our society and and almost powerless at least in the things we can measure by human terms and looking at the world around me it just is there any moving of the spirit left in this world and then that very question is confronted with the letters we heard this morning of a church that didn't even have a place and now they've got to figure out a way to provide for 130 people after building this four single room square structure in the middle of what looked like a mud field the last time I saw a picture of it. Are the stories of what happened from Belarus this summer But that's always the way it occurs. It just seems like there's just nothing but darkness. And you can't even find a match light anywhere in the world around us. And yet, suddenly it's there. Suddenly there's people who've walked away from God, coming back to God, returning to Him. And no other way to explain that except this working of the Spirit and then we hope, well, gosh, that's really great that it's happening in Punjab and in Latvia and Belarus, but could we just have a little bit here in Castle Rock? Could we just have a little bit here inside this building even? It almost feels like we're, almost feels wrong to even ask God for that. Like, can't we have just a little bit? Can't we just have the crumbs of that kind of stuff here for us? Maybe that's more of a revelation of my where I'm at and my own frustrations. More so than what it is for each of you. But we face this moment, we face this world, we face this life, we face every stinking rotten thing we have this week and it and if it wasn't your experience this week then maybe it was last week or maybe it will be this coming week just give me a crumb and we look here and we try to find something to grab hold of or i okay i tried to find something to grab hold of And the first words that God gives us are there was a man sent from God whose name was John. John, who was to be the witness to the light. It says in verse 7, to bear witness about this light that all may believe. And then we recognize that he's talking about John the Baptist. And so we can like, okay, let's take a look at that. And 
You can turn back to Luke chapter 3, right? Let's just have an objective, non-emotional look at what is this guy, John the Baptist, and what does he really do? Well, if you want the facts and nothing else, the place to go to is the Gospel of Luke. Luke is the best fact giver of all the Gospel writers. I mean, he's writing like an actual real historian writes. So when we look in Luke chapter 3, those first 14 verses, and in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Aturia and Traconitus, and Lysanias and tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood at Annas and Caiaphas, I sure wish Luke would give us a little more detail about exactly the time of this occurred, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds, apparently being convicted even to the core of their being, responded to John the Baptist in this way, starting in verse 10. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. And soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations. And be content with your wages. Wow, I mean, John obviously had results here with this kind of preaching, but I've never heard in all of the preaching classes and preaching seminars calling your people a brood of vipers is a good way to start revival. It's just counterintuitive. But this is what happened. It's almost as if no matter what John says, it's going to upheave the people listening to it. And I guess that's really accurate because at its core, this wasn't something that John the Baptist had as an innate gift, but it was what the Holy Spirit was moving through him for the purpose of preparing the way 
for the coming of the Messiah. And then, just to sort of punctuate this idea of John the Baptist and his preparing the way, after Luke gives us this wonderful factual explanation of John the Baptist and what he was doing and why he was doing it, we have Jesus' own words to us in Matthew chapter 17, uh, starting with verse 9, right after the transfiguration, right? They've been up on top of the mountain. He's shined like a bright star. There's Moses and Elijah and Peter, you know, not knowing, feeling like he needs to say something, but not knowing what to say. Hey, can I just build a tent for the three of you guys to hang out in? And then God speaks this, you know, voice from heaven speaks and this, this seems to be a recurring theme. When the voice of God speaks, people fall on their face. It just seems to be like all the time. Well, obviously, it doesn't happen all the time, but all the time it occurs in Scripture, everybody ends up face down on the ground. And then Jesus says, okay, get up. And they start walking down the mountain in verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Now, now it's significant that as we read what John the Apostle writes in his gospel about John the Baptist, that he's one of the three guys standing on this mountain. He's one of the three guys walking down the mountain with Jesus while Jesus says this to him. So he clearly understands, probably better than maybe the other disciples besides Peter and James that were with him, just how significant John the Baptist's work and purpose were. And we see this, this idea that people were convicted, they were cut to the core by the words of John in repentance and seeking forgiveness and genuine transformation from his preaching and from his teaching and from the words he said. And then like what Luke recorded from the book of Isaiah, he's making straight the way for the Lord. I'm like, okay, but what, how does that work? What is, what does that mean? Understand the imagery that when the Messiah comes, he's not going to have to climb up and down hills and valleys and stuff because those are just going to be flattened out. And it's just a smooth, straight surface. I get that imagery. But what does that really mean? What is that? How does that work in the real world? The imagery is there to communicate an idea that is supposed to occur in the real physical world. It's not just a good idea that feels good in your mind. It's supposed to communicate something real occurring. And that reality is, is that for salvation to come, there must first be this repentance and conviction and that prepares the way for the salvation and for the Savior. And that's what was occurring in the wilderness. And don't you think it's fascinating? 
It was the common people. It was the tax collectors and Roman soldiers who were coming to John the Baptist and being convicted and changed. Do you remember what the Pharisees, what their response and reaction was to John? Kill him. He's a pain in the, he's a pain in our side. Get rid of this fool. I mean, look, he runs around in the desert eating grasshoppers and wearing a animal hide for his clothing. Somebody get rid of this fool before he really embarrasses us. That's how they retreated. That's how they received the prophet Elijah of their day. But the commoners, the filth of their culture and society, heard, were convicted, and repented. Genuine change is the way it's presented to us in the Gospels. And that seems to be the case throughout church history. Throughout biblical history and church history, whether it's a personal revival or a community revival, there's this time of repentance and transformation preceding a powerful outpouring of the Spirit. We see it through the first and second great awakenings. We see it in each of these moments I was referring to in church history, like the Reformation. I mean, it was Luther himself who had this tremendous sense of conviction and, and sorrow at the false gospel, not only that he believed in, but he'd even encouraged others to believe in before he became the powerful witness a John the Baptist type to the people of his day. So I don't think we're going to be able to get away from this or escape this factual truth for ourselves individually and for us as a church. That personal revival or a church revival has to be preceded by this time of repentance and transformation and then comes the power of the Spirit. At least that's the way it looks. That's the way it, we, that's the way we see it and f- experience it. But that's not even really true. My conclusion is that there is no such thing, no such thing as conviction and repentance without a pouring of the Spirit. First, the irony is, is that it's the outpouring of the spirit that happens first before the conviction and the repentance occurs. We just don't see the results of it then. It's afterwards that we then see the results and we say, oh, my gosh, look at what the spirit's done. Or is doing. So. That's where we are where I am. But the good news is that after the working of the Spirit in this way, 
Then comes the light into the darkness. Verses 9 through 11, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world and he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Here John presents us as Jesus as Jesus is the light of the world. If you remember last week, I encouraged you to try to read through the entire gospel of John um, and do it as as you know, as much at one sitting as you possibly could. And if you do, if you did such a thing, if you, if you read the entire Gospel of John in a very short period of time, you may have noticed how he emphasizes this idea of Jesus is the light or the light shining in the darkness over and over in his Gospel. That's what struck me last week when I read it for the first time. Not for the first time, but I read it all the way through in a short period of time. Wow, this image of light and darkness and light overcoming darkness and Jesus being the light. He really said that a lot in his gospel. This is a really important major theme for him. Oh, wait. Yeah, that's right. He wrote Revelation very close to the same time he wrote the gospel of John. And wow, Jesus was a pretty bright light in the first chapter of Revelation. I don't think there's a coincidence. I don't think there's a coincidence that is he's that day in the spirit of the Lord, on the day of the Lord, on the island of Patmos, and he has this vision that we now know is the book of Revelation, that the very first thing he sees is this tremendously bright, shining light of Jesus, who, oh, by the way, he had seen that before. I'd seen that picture before. Where did I see that? Oh, yes, on the top of the mountain in Matthew chapter 17. I don't think it's a coincidence that all those things come rushing together to make the gospel of John have such an emphasis on light. Aren't we lucky that he remembered that? That's a, okay, sorry, I got to explain that one. I have a friend of mine and our, you know, our conviction and belief that there is not one thing that occurs in all of life in human history, whether it's across a culture or across an individual's life, that is random and has anything to do with actual luck as it's defined by our society and culture in the English language. It's all by providence, by his perfect will and working that everything happens. So in a sarcastic way, he and I will refer to, oh, aren't we lucky that John remembered his vision of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration when he's writing his gospel. And then there's this darkness and night understanding in the time frame of John writing it. Remember, in that day, both in 30 AD as well, when it happened that Jesus was walking on the earth, and in 85, 90 A.D. when John writes the Gospel of John, they ain't got no electric lights. There are no street lights. There's no illumination at night except what the stars reflect down to earth or the moon or maybe what kind of illumination you can get from a candle or an oil lamp. That's all you could get to pierce the darkness of night. 
in his day. Those street lights, no driving south to Amarillo and seeing the lights of Amarillo for 150 miles before you get there. None of that in John's day. It was like walking out into the middle of the Pike Forest, far, far away from any lights and being in the dark darkness of the woods. But that was all the time everywhere. We have to, on purpose, go to a place where it's as dark as it was for them every single night. And here John is emphasizing how his light shines and overcomes the darkness. He also points out that this same light is the light that shone first at creation. When I read you Genesis 1 last week, that the light and the shining of the light created by God from just saying the words, let there be light. Here's this same light shining in the midst of darkness. There in creation, it's a literal physical darkness bursting forth into the void of uncreated space. And here, John is referring to the spiritual darkness. At least in part, he's referring to the spiritual darkness that the people were experiencing. Because remember, between the moment of John the Baptist and Jesus, there were 400 years of silence. Not between Jesus and John the Baptist, but before them. For 400 years, no one heard the voice of God. Malachi the prophet is the last written word of God. And then 400 years, nothing. 400 years of silence. And all of a sudden, after 400 years of no voice from God, John the Baptist burst onto the Galilean hillsides and then to the Jordan plains. And then Jesus himself walking along the Jordan and then along the Sea of Galilee. 400 years of nothing like God speaking. And then suddenly you have John the Baptist and then Jesus. That's like, that's, that's like going six or seven weeks in June and July with no rain. And then all of a sudden, we get a monsoon. And you would think, wow, this is going to be awesome. And everybody soaks it in. But kind of like the bare ground that's so hardened from the drought, it just runs off. And his own people rejected him. You got the parable, the greatest example of this illustrated is Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 through 46, the parable of the tenants. For time's sake, I won't read that to you, but his own people rejected him. Just as the ones who should have been the most receptive to John the Baptist, the religious leaders, rejected him, so also they rejected Jesus. Which is why their condemnation is double. They're not just condemned for rejecting Jesus. They're doubly condemned because they rejected both John the Baptist and Jesus. 
It's like clear and absolute evidence. You have no clue who God is. If you rejected John and Jesus, you heard them both speaking directly to you and you rejected them both. You have no clue. And we come to verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him. Oh, so there are some who believed. And believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood. Nor of the will of the flesh. Nor of the will of man, but of God. And then John himself tells us in 1 John. John chapter 3 verse 1 that because we are born of God this way, they will reject us the same way they rejected Jesus. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. And then when we talk about this being born of God, notice how John emphasizes what the birth is not rooted in. It is not rooted in our ethnicity or our family origin or our race. You ain't saved because your mama was saved. Pure and simple. I am from the South. You ain't saved because your mama's saved. You ain't saved because everybody in your family was saved. You ain't saved because you grew up in a church where everybody is saved. It don't matter about your ethnicity or your family origin. That won't save you. But that's in direct contrast. To comprehend what a in your face, are you kidding me, Jesus? Comment that is. Idea. You have to remember that everything, everything the Jews believed when Jesus was here on this earth was that they were saved because they were Jews. They were saved because they were physical, genetic descendants of Abraham. And that was all you needed to be saved, brother. That's what they believed. But that's not true. You have to be born of God. Don't matter where you came from. Then also notice that it's The being born of God isn't rooted in our human will, nor the will of the flesh. And while it is true that our will concedes to and we confess Jesus as our Savior freely from the from the genuine desires of our hearts, that is not where it is born. Somehow in in a way that we can't really comprehend and understand in human intellect, it's birthed in us and then flows out of us. And notice that it's not rooted in effort. Human effort cannot bring about this birth. Look at the way Jesus describes it to John chapter 3. Nicodemus, when you're born again, it just you cannot explain this. It can't be done by human will. 1 Peter 1.3 says we are born again by God's choice and an action for us out of His love for us. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through 
the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then also, not only is this something that God does, it is signed, sealed, and delivered by His Word. We are born of the Word of God. 1 Peter 3, 23-25 Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this Word is the good news that has been preached to you. As Peter says it to his readers there in that first century, so also you understand it and know that you have been preached the good news that is the abiding word of the Lord, which remains forever. Your new birth, my new birth, our new birth as a child of God is divinely conceived. It is divinely birthed and it is as sure as the word of God itself. Turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Here, Moses is making a promise to the people of Israel, those who were taken out of Egypt. But it is also a promise that is to us as His people today through our new birth in Christ. Starting in verse 6 of chapter 7 in the book of Deuteronomy. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him face to face. Out of his love for us, he's chosen us and made us his people. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I look in the mirror, I don't really see something all that fantastic that God would choose me to be his son. And I look in the mirror, not just seeing this outward physical body that each of you see. I look in the mirror knowing the man that resides in this physical body. And he still did that. He still chose me. Yes, he did. Just like he still chose you out of his great love for us. Well, fantastic. So what? So what? First, you and I can be a John the Baptist to someone around us. We can be a witness to the light of the world in the middle of the darkness and emptiness they live in 
in the middle of their internal darkness and emptiness, you and I can be witnesses of the light of the world to them. But the only way that's going to work is if you and I let our light shine. As image bearers of Christ, conformed into His likeness. We are made to reflect the glory of Jesus into the hearts and souls and minds of those God calls us to be witnesses to. I can't create light. I cannot create light. No more than the moon can create light. No more than Mars and Venus and Betelgeuse can create light. Well, Betelgeuse does actually create light, but I can only reflect light. I can only reflect the light and the glory of Jesus by letting that light shine through me. The other so what here is that your place as a child of God is solidly fixed. Understand this. Your place as a child of God is as fixed as concrete that is cured and dried. Because you and I were born of God's will, not man's will or our own strength, nor because of our ethnicity and our family heritage. We were born of His Word. His never-ending, never-failing Word. Therefore, our sonship and daughtership is as fixed as concrete. And if you are not now, start living like you are a child of God. Start living like you are a child of God if you aren't already doing it. And I don't mean clean up your act and behave your heritage. I ain't talking about that. That is just self-willed righteousness. What I mean is see yourself as who you really are, as God sees you as his reborn child. Take up and live in your identity as a child of the king, as one who feasts at the table of his or her father. You ain't a crumb eater no more. You ain't a crumb eater no more. You are one who feasts at the table of your father. And lastly, to live like this, I understand how hard it is to see ourselves as his children reborn this way. I understand. I know how long I struggled to believe that was really true about me. But to live like this, you must truly embrace your identity and believe who you are. I wish I could walk up to you and pour this into your brain and into your heart, into your mind and soul like pouring water into a jar. I wish I could do that, but I can't. You must embrace your identity and believe who you are. You have to live as a child of God from the inside out, not the outside in. This isn't fake it till you make it, Christianity. This is believe it. 
feel it and live it. Christianity. And I say that knowing how hard it is to believe it and feel it and live it. It almost feels hypocritical for me to say that statement this morning. Because I really struggled this week to believe it and feel it and live it. I was a whole lot closer to the fake it till you make it side than I was to the believe it, feel it and live it side. So in my imperfect practicing that, I still proclaim it to you. Believe it, feel it, and live it from the inside out. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you are God and that you, by your word, have borne us to yourself out of your great love for us. And nothing we do can change who you've made us into by the power of your will and by the blood of the Lamb. Hallelujah. Praise you, Father. Praise you, Jesus, that we are born of God. Amen.